morning, Calvary family, and welcome to this place of worship. It's, my joy, it's a joy to be together and to worship in this place as a family of God this morning. My name is Jenny Chilton. I am the children's minister here at Calvary. If this is your first time here, we are so happy to have you, and we would like to invite you to fill out a visitor card, which you'll find in the pew in front of you. This will help us to connect with you and to get you plugged in here at Calvary. If you're interested in learning more about our ministries or sharing a prayer concern, the visitor card also has a place where you can indicate that, and we would love to hear from you. Please place those filled out cards in the offering plates later in the service. You'll need a couple of things to navigate today's worship service. A worship folder, the manila ones that were outside, and one of the blue hymnals in front of you. During the season of Lent, we have been talking about how to be good stewards of our pain. We have examined our hearts and lives in regards to the themes of grief, loneliness, and betrayal. But we have also been reminded not to be afraid, for God is with us, shining light into the midst of our darkness. Today we are grateful for the opportunity to ponder what the stewardship of rejection might look like, and we are happy to welcome Josh Carney as our guest preacher. Josh pastors University Baptist Church here in Waco. Thank you for being with us today, Josh. I don't know where you're at, but uh, hello. And thank you to the UBC family for welcoming Mary Alice to preach there today. This morning, let us come before God together, holding our brokenness to the light of Christ as we worship the God who will never leave or reject us.
our shepherd, all we like sheep have gone astray. And each day we are given the choice, day by day, moment by moment, to choose Jesus. And each day, moment by moment, because of fear, and because of apathy, and because of selfishness, we say instead, give us Barabbas. Even though we know that when we say, give us Barabbas, that that means that Jesus, which is called the Christ, must be crucified. And you were crucified. He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And then this, by his stripes we are healed. Stripes which should be a reminder to him to stay away from us, but instead are a reminder to us that he will not stay away. God, we are grateful for your love. This week, moment by moment, this day, let us say, give us Jesus. Amen. God, when we rejected, when we are rejected, we feel alone. We remember that you were despised, rejected, a man of sorrow, and acquainted with grief. You met rejection with love. You showed love through sacrifice, offering those who rejected you salvation and hope. May rejection serve as a guide, pointing us to truth. Lead us to walk in your way. Lead us to listen to your voice. Lead us to follow your truth in a world that hates truth. You were despised and rejected. The crowds you fed shouted, Hosanna, one week, and screamed, Crucify him, the next. And God could not look upon the sin you carried. You hung alone, wrapped only in his love for us. We, we give your you love to those, those who reject us, your hope, your peace. We ask for strength to carry rejection in ways that show your grace. Amen. This little light of A reading from Isaiah. 
Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Let him be crucified, they said. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So, when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
If the children could come join us in the front for the children's message. Well, this week, we are talking about rejection. Rejection is that feeling you get when someone doesn't think you're good enough or doesn't want you around. Like if you're on the playground and someone doesn't want to play with, want you to play with them, how does that make us feel? Rejected, yes. <laughs> does it make you feel happy or sad? Yeah, pretty sad. Well, guess what? Jesus was rejected too, and he says that if we follow him, we will also be rejected. This morning, I have my friend Ellie Becker, who is in the youth here, who she's going to share with us a bit about what we can do if we feel rejected. Ellie, thinking back in your life, can you remember a time when you felt rejected? Yeah, so um, one thing that I love to do and I get excited to do is theater. Is there anything that y'all love to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was that? Xbox. Xbox. That sounds really fun. Yeah. Well, um, I love singing and acting on stage, but in order to do all that stuff, I have to audition, which is honestly the hardest part of the whole process. But when you get the part you wanted, it makes you feel really good, and and you're excited for the process. But Sometimes the auditions don't always go the way you want them to. Um, but like when I get rejected from the role, it's hard and sometimes hard to accept the role I've received. Thank you. Well, what are some ways that God has helped you when you felt rejected? And what advice do you have for us and for these kids about what to do when they feel rejected? Even though getting rejected is disappointing and can make you feel discouraged, God says in Psalm 27:10 that even if my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord will hold me close. Rejection can make us feel alone, but we know that God is always there and looking out for us. Yes, thank you. Well, that's kind of like our memory verse for Lent, which says, if you know it, you can say it with me, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Isaiah 43, 5. We're going to have um, Miss Ellie, we're all going to stand up together and walk over and light a candle. Miss Ellie's going to light a candle for us. And that way we can remember that even when people reject us, God will never leave us or reject us.
There's one thing that has always been a constant for me as a person throughout my entire life. Um, it's something that I'm pretty sure won't come as a surprise to most of you, but that one constant is music. Throughout my experiences with music in grade school and high school, I slowly started taking it more seriously. And eventually it got to the point that I decided to study music education in college. At Baylor, all freshman vocal music majors are placed in a mixed choir together that also includes students of all classifications who are primarily non-music students. This choir provides an experience for freshman voice majors to adapt to the level and amount of singing that a university requires. At the end of their freshman year, an audition is held for the premier mixed choir. This group is made up of about 45 students, of which 95% are vocal music majors. My freshman year at Baylor was wonderful at times, but I also often struggled as I figured out how to live away from my parents and how college life worked. Throughout this learning process, one thing always stayed constant, my love for music and my desire for learning more about it. As finals approached, auditions for the premier choir were held. I auditioned and was extremely satisfied with how I sang. A couple of days passed, and I was elated to learn that I had made a spot on the callback list. I went to the callbacks with confidence, again feeling satisfied with how I sung. A few more days went by, and finally the results were posted. As I read the list, I found every single name that had been on the callback list, every name except mine. I was the only person to receive a callback and not be chosen. My world stopped for a few moments as I let this new information sink in. It was real and it was painful. I felt rejection in a way that I had never experienced rejection before, and I felt publicly shamed. I went on to feel this pain for a long time, especially for all of the next school year, as I watched my close friends enjoy the choir that I didn't get to be a part of. I felt subpar and questioned whether or not I had chosen the right major or career path. I threw myself into a pity party that lasted for months. As time passed, and after many long talks with my parents, I decided to not let which choir I was in rule my world anymore. I took, I took control of the things that I could control. I gained healthier exercising and eating habits, lost 35 pounds, and became a better student. I stopped letting the fact that I got rejected dictate how I felt about myself, and I believe I've become a better person for it. Dealing with any type of pain isn't simple, but I believe that there is something to be learned from every situation. The ways I've learned to deal with pain from this particular experience will be with me for the rest of my life, which is something I'm grateful for. Although it's often easier said than done, we definitely have the power to not let rejection hurt us forever.
Well, good morning, Calvary Baptist Church. I'm very excited to be here this morning. And um, this is a church that I've worshipped at one other time in my sabbatical in 2014, but I feel like I have a deepened sense of community with just because Waco is a small town and my affection for you has grown both through my relationship with Mary Alice, but so many of you who I know as friends and, and as some of you as professors and whatnot. So uh, to, to beat a dead horse, I'm, I'm really glad to be here today. I want to say thank you to Dr. Bradley and the worship leaders also for uh, just a beautiful morning of worship thus far. Uh, I have a kind of thesis that I want to run by you, and I, I think I have the answer to that. But there's, the thesis is this. There's something very special about Waco. By way of anecdotal evidence, I had a conversation with a friend this week. Come to find out, he came from Bozeman, Montana, and he worked on a, an organic farm that was doing fair trade stuff and producing fruits and vegetables to land on the plates of children in elementary schools. And I was thinking, wow, what an amazing place and an amazing job. Why in the world did you come to Waco? And um, he, he said, it was because of Fixer Upper, of course. I'm just kidding, he didn't say that. Um, he said he came here because of the community. I grew up in northern Wisconsin, and so that was very beautiful. I do love Waco, but because of where I grew up, and I find Waco a bit wanting in two ways. One is the topography. I mean, this is sort of where the east meets the west in Texas, and it's, it's got a little bit of, of topography, like Cameron Park's fun, but by and large, it's pretty flat. The other thing is, is the weather, and I'm sure you're all with me. You can start out a day in a and like shorts and a t-shirt and end the day in galoshes and a parka, but the real disdain we all have is for August and September. Nobody moves here for the, the weather or the topography, but Waco does have remarkable people, people like you. My dad was a pastor in a small town in northern Wisconsin. The church was a non-denominational charismatic community. And uh, as such, he had a really good group of ecumenical friends. He was good friends with the Catholic priests. He was good friends with the Methodist pastors and the Lutheran pastors. But he wasn't very good friends with the pastor of the other non-denominational charismatic church in town because they were shopping for the same sheep. Um, and I thought, well, if I adopted that same strategy here in Waco, I just wouldn't have any friends. Because in Waco, we're all Baptists. Even the Methodists are Baptists in Waco. I say all that to say this. I think there's a very sweet spirit of unity that exists among us between Mary Alice and myself and some other pastors that I know, and, and I'm honored to be a grateful part of that. And we've inherited this. As I understand it, Julie PR and my former pastor, Kyle Lake, and Burt Burleson and Dorsey and Cooper, names you've probably known if you've been around Waco for a while, had a group of people that got together, and, and the bunch of us get together still, and we feel like we've inherited this great tradition. Uh, beyond that, my sister and her family live right next door to us on Colcord, and they bought their house from Jim Costin, a deal I helped broker. And so the ways in which I feel connected to this community are, are many. So again, I want to say thank you for having me here this morning. I'd like to begin with a bit of self-disclosure. My name is Josh, which is probably obvious at this point. Uh, I have four kids and a wonderful wife who are here with me this morning, as is my mother. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up in Wisconsin, and so I love the Packers, the Badgers, and Mountain Dew. I'm an ENFP, a High D, a Slytherin, and a Golden Retriever. Uh, but because this is Waco and I'm in the religion business, now let me share with you the only thing that anyone cares about. That is my Enneagram number. I'm a three, just like the Trinity. My initials are JC. Coincidence? Maybe. <laughs> if you don't know Enneagram, and I'm a little bashful about bringing it up because it certainly turns people one way or another, you just know this, I'm a lot like John Singletary. And for the purpose of this first story, I like to believe that I'm really special. I recently took a trip with my family and spring break out to West Texas, 
and as such, there's a lot of time to drive. And so I decided to try my hand at a few podcasts and downloaded them. One of them was, was Radiolab. Show a hand. Does anybody do Radiolab? They recently had this episode called Loops, L-O-O-P-S. And I don't know if you've ever listened to Radiolab, but in my opinion, it's, it's not very concerned about narratival coherence. You might describe their format as inductive. They just tend to give listeners a bunch of stories, caring very little what they have to do with each other. They're just gathered around a theme. So in this episode, one of the stories about loops was about uh, Christine Campbell, who gets a call from her mother, Mary Sue. And Mary Sue calls Christine and says, uh, Christine, craziest thing, my calendar says it's August of 2010. Well, in fact, it was August of 2010. And then Mary Sue proceeds to say, there's this black truck in my driveway and I don't know who it belongs to. Well, at this point, Christine became very concerned because the truck belonged to Mary Sue's boyfriend whom she had been dating for years and that truck had been sitting there for years. So she thinks, oh my goodness, my mom's had a stroke. And so she calls the paramedics and she gets in her car to drive up to San Francisco to intercept her mom at the hospital. When she gets there, the doctor greets Christine and explains good news. Your mother has something called transient global amnesia. Good news because this sudden mysterious onset of memory loss is what it is, but it only lasts between 1 and 24 hours. It's a bit of a mystery, but your mom will be fine. So Christine goes to her mom's room. And they begin a conversation. Her mom's asking about the situation, asks about her birthday. She says, I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. Christine explains the story. Her mom asks about the date again, understandably, given the confusion she's in. Again, her birthday comes up. And as you listen to this program on this podcast, you begin to detect in the story that there's this precise pattern of conversation developing between Christine and her mom, Mary Sue. So to map it out for you, it goes exactly like this. First, Mary Sue asks about the date. Then she asks if her birthday has already passed. Then she says this particular word, darn. Then she laughs. Then they recap the story. And then when Christine tells her mom about the paramedics getting there, she gets really wide-eyed and in utter disbelief says this, again, a specific word that's creepy. And right around the time she gets to the word creepy, the story resets. And they do this over and over every 90 seconds. And you can watch this. It's on YouTube. And they started filming it. And what becomes very apparent is that ceteris paribus, all things being equal, given the same input or data, we discovered this about Mary Sue and humanity, we've become very predictable. I don't know about you, but ever since I saw The Matrix in 1999, I've been very concerned about this kind of stuff. Because I remember I'm an Enneagram 3 and I want to be special. So I'm listening to this and I begin hyperventilating in Carlsbad, New Mexico because all of a sudden I think the Calvinists are right about everything. So I schedule an appointment with my therapist. I barrel into her office like Jack Nicholson from as good as it gets. And I say, doctor, it's bad. Everything I learned in seminary was just undermined by a podcast. And my therapist is very good. She, uh, she walks me back from the edge. She says, it's okay, Josh. You are special, just not in the way you think. I make the joke about the Matrix, but there's a growing movement of people that includes most notably Elon Musk, uh, who considering, are considering that our existence is a kind of simulation, and they search the news and history for oddities that seem to suggest this. The most recent I read about was an example of the Oscar snafu in 2017 when it was errantly announced that La La Land had won Best Picture. Transhumanists are what they call themselves, Reason that this was another example in which in higher intelligence that simulating our experience was punking us as human beings. It got me thinking about the choices we make. 
how we make them. Are we free to make them? Who would I have asked for on that fateful Friday morning if I was in that crowd with Jesus and Barabbas? Recently heard a sociology professor who walked his students through the circumstances in Germany in the 1930s, right before World War II. And at the epitome of what would have been their judgmental indignation, he concluded his lecture by suggesting to the students that every piece of data we have on human beings points to the reality that statistically the majority of them sitting in that lecture would have supported the Third Reich in the same circumstances. And beyond our own complicit nature in Jesus' rejection, there's the theological complexity that this needed to happen so that, as Matthew might say, all righteousness could be fulfilled. Consider Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus interprets this for us in Matthew 24. It makes us read past verse 22 and reminds us that, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Matthew almost sounds a little bit like John here. Glory and the cross are, are nearby. Or to put language around this that direct, uh, acknowledges the trajectory of this sermon series, Jesus is the perfect example of someone who found a way to steward his pain. I sometimes have to remind myself that Jesus prayed in the garden, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. It makes me wonder how heartbreaking this moment was for Jesus. Was there a fully human hope within him that perhaps the crowd might pick Barabbas instead? Surely Jairus would remember what Jesus did for his daughter and object. Surely the centurion with great faith would use his clout and meet Pilate and the officers club and lobby for Jesus' release. Maybe if some people had made it down from Cana because it was the week of Passover, they would have remembered the epic party that Jesus helped them throw and step in and speak up on his behalf. But they didn't, and Barabbas was set free. I went back and read the chapter from Frederick Buechner's book in which he talks about the stewardship of pain. And while I was reading it, I was reminded of the parable that he points to, the one that Mary Alice used to open this series. We have all been handed something different and are ultimately responsible for what we do with it. We're admonished by Jesus in the parable of the talents to engage in developing them. I'll tell you a secret. I've always hated that parable. I'd be the guy who buried the one talent. I can play fast and loose with a lot of things, but my security and safety isn't one of them. If Jesus tried to tell that parable today, I'd remind him about the housing crisis in 2008. What do you think about that, bucko? We can't all pull a coin out of a fish's mouth when we run out of lunch money. But then I kept reflecting on Beekner's words in his proposal. and realized that he's asking us to consider trading in the very thing I'm trying to avoid. That is my own pain. So what would it mean for Jesus to steward this moment? What would it mean for us to steward this moment? When I was a junior in high school, I began dating my wife. And uh, we were dating for around seven or eight months. And at that time, we'd gotten pretty close, as close as you get in high school relationships. And in late spring of that year, my, my dog died unexpectedly. Ollie was a black lab. She was six or seven years old. She had been sick all weekend, and we could tell that. And she was moving slow. And our plan was to take her into the vet's office on Monday. But late Sunday afternoon, she began heaving, and it was clear to us that she was dying. And she did. And I cried because I had lost something. 
And I went to my best friend's house and I grieved with him and I never told Lindsay. I was trying to hide my pain from her. A few days later, in casual conversation in the hallways of high school, my friend Jason had let out that my dog had died and that's how Lindsay found out. And you know what? She got hurt by that. She got hurt by my unwillingness to let her into my own pain. I wasn't vulnerable with her and that hurt our relationship. Withholding our pain is a form of rejection. And here's the thesis statement. This is what I have italicized and centered in my sermon. I think the best way of avoiding rejecting people is to be honest about our pain when we have it. So what would I be as a preacher here today if I wasn't going to do that? If I wasn't going to be honest with you about my own pain? What good would this sermon be if I wasn't willing to share my own pain with you and my own story? So I am. I'm going to use this one opportunity I have here to go all the way into the truth and tell you about it. Waco life is a small bubble. Uh, The Waco religious Baptist life is even a smaller bubble. We all know each other. We all get gossip from the same circles. So I'm going to assume that you know what's going on at UBC, but in case you don't, I will say it explicitly here. In January this year, we announced that we're asking two questions about UBC and her relationship with the LGBTQ community. At UBC, We have people who feel very differently about this and how we should answer these two questions. And so at the outset of this process, I preached a sermon in January where I really asked everybody for one thing. I asked them to stay until it was finished. And I've been so proud of our people. They have loved each other. They have respected each other. They have exceeded my expectations and showed me and one another the love of Christ and the graciousness they have extended one another. But I have not slept well now for about a week and a half. And that's because my heart is beginning a transition. I know that the hard thing is still coming. Our leadership team will answer those questions, and when they do, there will be a group of people who, to honor their convictions, feel like they have to leave. And when that moment comes, I hope that I can bless them. I hope I can send them. And I hope I can express my gratitude for them. But it will be hard, because I love them. And I feel like God gave me them to care for. And this has been hard and this has been confusing. And there have been places where I weep within myself for them because that's the holy work I've been given to do. You know what the hardest thing about this, now that I'm so far in the middle of it, is there aren't good guys and there aren't bad guys. It'd be easier if that was the case. There aren't dumb arguments and good arguments. That'd be easier if that was the case. There's really just good people with different convictions. And where's the parable that addresses that? As I've been praying about what goodbye looks like in these circumstances, I have felt a a loosening and and distancing. And as, as I've done this, I've already learned something, and that is this. The worst thing isn't people leaving the church. The worst thing would be if we tried to hide our pain from one another. The best way for me to tell them that I love them and say thank you is by showing them how much it hurts. And if we can do that, if I can do that, if they can do that, then we will have been stewards of our rejection in such a way that it is turned by lo- into love in a way that only the gospel can. So, I wanted to ask all of you if you would pray for UBC in these next few months as we finish this process. And then I wanted to conclude by talking about one last thing. And to be fair, this is what I would say at every church, given the opportunity, if I could. 
I'm going to tell you something that Mary Alice has never told you because she's a good pastor. It's a secret that all pastors know about, but I can tell you because I'm not your pastor. <laughs> One thing about Christian faith that I understand, but have, has always seemed kind of silly to me, is the admonishment to be like, be like Jesus, strive to be like Jesus. This is the only category of life where we pick the most impossible benchmark and expect people to try hard. Like if I'm teaching my four-year-old to throw a football, I don't pause and say, well, big gap between you and Tom Brady, but like, keep at it, right? That would be obnoxious. <laughs> or my 12-year-old's an aspiring writer. If I were to proof his work, say something like, this is good, not J.K. Rowling good, but it's, it's decent, keep at it. That would be absurd. But we tell everyone to be like the one person in human history who knew no sin and was out without sin when it comes to moral competence. I'll tell you this, there weren't any Enneagram threes on that committee. This is why whenever we read parables, by the way, no one ever assumes they're the God figure in the story. So take the story of the prodigal son, which shows up in the lectionary, the lost son, or however you want to word it. I've heard people identify as the younger brother. I've heard people identify as the older brother. But no one ever says, you know, I've had a really good week. I think I'm like the father in this story. I'm very gracious and extend love to everyone. That would be obnoxious. And still we say, be like Jesus, just like Jesus. My God, think of the poor Enneagram ones. They don't abuse themselves enough already, and we tell them this. So we all know in our story for today who we had to identify with, right? We would identify with the crowd or maybe the Roman soldiers, maybe Barabbas. But none of us are Jesus. Only Jesus is Jesus. You can try and be like Jesus, but no one is actually like Jesus. With great humility, I want to make for you one final suggestion. There is one, someone among you who stands up in that place by Barabbas, and it is your pastor. It's not the kind of thing she'll tell you. And of course, I don't mean that Mary Alice can take away the sins of the world or that she's without sin. Here's what I do mean. There are so many talented people in Waco. So many gifted people here. Some of you have degrees in religion and PhDs in the Bible that she'll never have. Some of you do justice work on the cutting edge of some really exciting things that's going to make a big splash in the kingdom of God, and we're so proud of you. Some of you are doing research that has na national recognition, recognition, and you're going to make the world a better place, and I'm so honored to know you. You know what Mary Alice's thing is? You know what her competitive advantage is? She's going to suffer. There was a moment during her ordination, and it wasn't in the worship guide, and she made a deal with God, and what she agreed to do was follow God into all the hard places that nobody else is called to go. She's a priest among you. In the life of Israel, the priest was the person who offered a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. The priest functioned as a conduit of the presence of God to God's people and vice versa. The priest was the only one who once a year entered the Holy of Holies. I guess what I mean is this. Mary Alice will be called to places by God on behalf of you that none of you are called to go. She will carry burdens on behalf of this community that no one in this church will ever know about. And she will suffer because that's what leadership does. You don't need to feel bad for her. This is what God has called her to, and this is what God made Mary Alice for. But you can do something for her. The pastor appreciation gifts are nice. 
and Mary Alice brags to me about all of you, about how you take care of her. This is a good community. I know that about you. But there's something you can do that will mean more. You can come to church when you don't want to. You can trust that when Mary Alice makes a decision that you don't like, that she didn't do it to hurt you. Because she has made hundreds for the betterment of you that she didn't like. You can tell Mary Alice how much the sermon meant to you. You can tell Mary Alice how much the hospital visit meant to you. You can tell Mary Alice that the fact that she texted you to ask about her sick aunt meant the world to you because you stopped her on Sunday morning when she had 45 things to do. And yet somehow she remembered and still texted you. And by God, pray for her. And pray for her family. Because while you will always have the luxury of not knowing when your priest has been wounded for you and for this community, they always will. The reason Mary Alice leads so well here is because she deals in the currency and the vulnerability of her pain without making it about her pain. Instead, she has you all looking at Jesus. Let's pray. God, we begin by confessing that we were in the crowd that morning and we called for the release of Barabbas. And then as the complicit and the guilty, we turn around and offer our hearts of gratitude that you took Jesus. Uh, as we move towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we ask that your spirit would be active preparing our hearts to receive the work you're doing in our lives that we would be a people who become good stewards of our pain. And we trust that the Spirit is at work within us, helping us do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And that's exactly what we have done and will continue to do through and during the series of the Stewardship of Pain. So this morning, wherever you might be in your faith journey or walk, we invite you to respond. Maybe you're considering making a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been thinking about joining our church family here at Calvary, where we seek to learn about and know Jesus the best we can. We would love to talk with you more about that. Maybe this morning you need space to remember. You're invited to light a candle at one of our stations and remember and create that space with one another. However you're feeling called to respond, ministers will be at the back of the sanctuary to talk and pray with you as you feel led.
loving God, as you teach us to be good stewards of our pain, remind us that to do so we must be good stewards of our entire being, our thoughts, our time, and even our money. And we admit, Lord, that giving of our finances is often the most difficult thing to do. We confess, O oh God, that we simply are not changed enough by the great truths of the gospel to denounce wealth and materialism. Lord, please send your Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we do not love the things of this world, but love you more. Send your Spirit to heal our anxiety about finances and to trust your provision so that we may give freely and abundantly to you. Oh, gracious God, may we be good stewards of all that we have and all that we are. Amen.
Thank you very much for worshiping here today with us. I am very glad that we have one that has come forward to accept Christ today, and Jenny's going to introduce Jada. Calvary family, it is my joy to introduce you to Jada Fulton this morning. Jada is excited to share with us that she's decided to follow Christ and wants to be baptized. <laughs> Jada is a fifth grader at Woodgate Intermediate. She loves swimming and space and playing the piano. And for those of you who know Jada, you know that she is intelligent, enthusiastic, artistic, and that she has great questions about her faith, and she's a faithful friend. She's the daughter of Jamie and Deirdre Fulton and big sister to Dane Fulton. And if you would like to come join me, her family, up here. Um, Jada, your Calvary family celebrates this decision with you. It's the most important decision you could ever make. We're looking forward to journeying with you in the days ahead. And now we have some special words that we would like to share with you this morning. In response to your decision, we pledge ourselves. I'm going to ask Jada and her family to stay up here with me after um, the this, this, uh, benediction, and I know you'll want to come and greet Jada and celebrate this decision with her and with her family um, as you head out or head down to the fundraiser, um, so thank you for sharing this time with us. Normally, we ask them to go uh, out, but we thought so many of you are going to be going downstairs that maybe this would be a better place for you to greet them. A few announcements, a few reminders that I want to uh, mention. One is that there is a lunch today, as Jenny just mentioned, downstairs. We encourage you to stay for the lunch, and there will be things that you can bid on to help with children's camp. So please support this important uh, time today. This is the last day for nominations for deacons and also for coordinating council. There's a ballot that you found in your worship folder, so please uh, fill that in out and make sure it gets turned in today. Next Saturday is a yard sale that we will have here. Please be present on Saturday and greet our neighbors and be a part of that special event. Two weeks from now, it's worship in the park. So for those long-term people, uh, we never know what, it's either too hot or too cold, uh, but it'll be something. So you can count on something special two weeks from today for sure. Um, I also want to say thanks to Josh Carney. Thank you so much for being here. We are so grateful for you and your family. Yes. You've blessed us greatly. Thank you. 
let us now, as we prepare to go, let us go from this place both um, as, well, as stewards of all that is in our lives, both of pain and of joy. Let us stand together as we speak together our benediction. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and you are precious in my sight. Amen. Go now in peace. Amen.